0: This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, we're thrilled today to feature two magnificent speakers and leaders. We've got with us Sanjeev Agrawal, President and Chief Operating Officer of Lean Toss, and Angela Yochum, uh, Executive Vice President, Chief Transformation Digital Officer of Novant Health. Uh, I'll give you their bios in a second. Before I do so, we're going to talk today about four or five subjects, and they'll do a great conversation around these. Learning from other industries. How does healthcare learn from other industries, whether it's pharma, airlines, others? Building a culture of innovation that doesn't just rely on internal innovation, but takes advantage of other innovation, other industries, other areas, other providers, other systems. Addressing staffing challenges through automation uh, and through virtual efforts, virtualization. So that as well. Finally, crafting an innovation strategy that works, that puts the patient first and that works, that, that works for the system, works for the patient. And, 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 and also just looking at how do you develop a culture of continuous learning, again, using external and internal sources. So, so with that, let me give you a quick introduction to Sanjeev and to Angela, and then I'll turn it over to them for this discussion. Sanjeev Agarwal is literally fascinating. He serves as the president and chief operating officer for Lean Toss. Wingtos is the leading AI machine learning analytics company in healthcare. Uh, the predictive analytics software works with and powers over 140 health systems, more than 500 hospitals to improve access and lower costs. Sanjeev, by background, is the co author of the book Better Healthcare Through Math. Before Leantos, Sanjeev was Google's first head of product marketing and led three successful startups. He was the CEO at a low that was acquired by Motorola, VP of products and marketing at Tell Me Networks, acquired by Microsoft, and finally, founder and CEO of College Feed, acquired by after College. Truly a brilliant person. He graduated with a bachelor's of science, master's of science degrees in electrical engineering, and computer science from MIT. He started his career at McKinsey and & Company and Cisco Systems before joining Google. Uh, he's been named by Becker's Healthcare as one of the top entrepreneurs innovating in healthcare. Thank you. In addition to Sanjeev, we've got the brilliant and remarkable Angela Yokum. Angela serves as the v- Executive Vice President's Chief Transformation Digital Officer for Novant Health. Novant Health is one of the great systems in the country. There's this great, great mix of executing and blocking, tackling and, and, and doing great things for patients while also being incredibly, incredibly innovative. Angela heads up innovation or help center transformation and digital and digital. Uh, Novant's super regional healthcare system was one of the largest medical groups in the U.S. She and her teams at Novant oversee growth initiatives and deliver the world-class consumer capabilities, differentiating technologies and advanced clinical solutions that allow the integrated system to provide remarkable care. Uh, while Angela is a relative newcomer to healthcare, she has a long experience, diverse experience across a wide range of industries. She brings a fresh, unique perspective to her work in transforming a health system. Angela has a brilliant background, fascinating background, both a a Bachelor of Music from DePaul University and a Master of Science and Computer Sciences from the University of Tennessee. She herself holds three patents as an author with Addison Wesley and Prentice Hall. Uh, And now I'll turn it over to Angela and Sanjeev for their discussion on transforming hospital operations as part of the Transform Hospital Operations Summit.
1: Hi, Angela, it's good to see you again. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for inviting me. This is really fun.
1: Um, Novant and Lintas have been partners for many years. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Um, You know, maybe we can get started with a uh, little bit about yourself and Novant Health and your role as EVP and Chief Transformation and Digital Officer, Uh, if you wouldn't mind telling us uh, about both. To get started, that'd be terrific.
2: Oh, thank you. Novant Health is an integrated healthcare system based in the southeastern U.S. We have um, about 40,000 team members. We have 800 locations. Uh, some of those are large hospitals, but most of them are ambulatory uh, locations like clinics and physician centers and operating centers and the like. Uh, we span in our core business uh, three states, but we have some of our subsidiaries are across 13. We uh, are about $8 billion in revenue. My responsibility is, um, well, I wear many hats at Novant Health. So let me tell you a little bit about them um, in no particular order. So I'm responsible first for all things related to technology. Um, I'm the chief digital officer. So that means I have all traditional IT, Um and it also means that I have responsibility for the line of business that is our digital health space. So all of the operations of digital health, all of the, the clinicians who support digital health um, as a, as a uh, on-demand service, all of those, um, all, uh, there's a device company embedded in that. All of that is what I consider part of my digital responsibilities. Then of course, and, and by the way, that also includes, um, a strong data team, cognitive computing organization, and a lot of things that I have a feeling we'll be talking about here today.
1: Right.
2: I also have a, a chief transformation officer role. And what we mean by that at Novant Health is business transformation. So that means uh, things related to new business growth are part of my remit. We investigate adjacencies to our core business or some things that aren't entirely adjacent <laughs> <laughs> um, as potential new revenue streams for us, um, potential new offerings for our consumers, um, our patients. Uh, all of that analysis and that work and the seed um, the seed activity typically happens out of my transformation, part of my, my job. I also have responsibility for our innovation labs, um, which has been very exciting. Uh, and most recently, I took over responsibility for operations for a spin-out that we have into which we moved many of our ambulatory assets and a lot of our unconventional growth is coming from that spin-out uh, area. And I, I'm responsible, I'm the COO and, and general manager for that, um, assisting the, my colleague who is the, uh, the president and, uh, and the brains of the operation. So we're, we're having fun over there and, and looking at new ways to grow and expand and serve our patients you know, in line with the future of healthcare, not necessarily the past.
1: That's a, that's a big job, however you look at it. Lots of responsibilities, uh, and you've built a phenomenal team. Mm. The part about your background that I know you and I have talked about before, and one that I relate to closely because I don't have a deep healthcare background except for the last seven years, is that um, I've always found your background fascinating. The CIO of you know several multi-billion-dollar companies. Uh, in logistics, in retail, uh, in banking, in insurance. So when you think about um, coming into healthcare, are there things you can think about that you experienced or learned from your background that you think are apropos uh, and, and useful in your role today?
2: So big pharma. One of the things that the pharma industry has known for decades is that it's no longer reasonable for every great idea, every new Drug discovery to come out of their four walls. So, you know, the last couple of decades, Big Pharma has built all the constructs that need to be in place to allow them to source tremendous discoveries from independent labs, from other third party types, research institutions, and then they apply their. Heft and their scale to helping with the development of the medicine and the you know the trials and the commercialization and, and so on, um, and, and the entire business model moved in the last several decades from being everything is contained internally, all R and D is done internally, um, and the entire you know discovery, development, manufacture, commercialization process is inside the four walls. So when I arrived uh, at a at a large pharma, I had I had the benefit of already seeing their transformation, and it occurred to me that so many of us in big tech have tried to build. Um, you know, we, we end up with this this buy versus build conversation going on, and it's either that you know we build something internally because you know we have some sort of differentiating um, capability set inside of our ecosystem, inside of our estate or, um, you know, we buy it because it's not differentiating and we just want it off the shelves. And what I, what I did is I started to emulate um, the big pharma R&D space. And I said, you know what, really most of the interesting differentiation is coming from co-creation. So let's create a set of constructs that allow us to very easily partner with a variety of third parties individual inventors certainly the startup community certainly universities and all their researchers certainly um, commercial organizations that have maybe some commercially available products but maybe are developing new products new capability sets in with which we could um, you know in which we could participate and with whom we could potentially uh, go to market there's so many ways to build out a broader ecosystem that allows, a technology organization inside of any industry to be truly differentiated, without having to fall back on the only way to differentiate, is to build something internally. That's so right. that's that's a big, big learning that I've I've carried forward ever since.
1: And that's uh, that's huge. I mean, uh, and we'll talk about that uh, uh, in a little bit as well, because somehow Novant has built this culture of innovation and partnership and moving quickly and failing quickly or learning quickly as you say uh, as opposed to just failing quickly before we get there though talk to us about the importance of digitization and virtualization in healthcare particularly now
2: mm. one of the things that is causing you know broadly speaking across the industry a tremendous amount of angst is the staffing shortage issue and you know we have we have a situation where, and we as an industry, I'm not speaking for Novant Health because I believe as I look at the results across the top 40 um, integrated systems across the US, um, we compare favorably to many, if not most. Um, So I'm not speaking specifically about Novant Health right now, but just as an industry, we, we share the same challenge. And that is with a shortage in staffing, particularly nurse staffing, but a lot of clinical staffing, uh, we cannot prov- we cannot perform as many procedures as we would like, um, and what that means is we don't have the revenue stream coming in that we typically do, um, and the cost of the staff that we have has skyrocketed because so many members of um, the broader clinical community, you know, they're, they've just experienced such burnout as a result of the. The pandemic, the stresses, um, societal pressures—it's just a terrible. It's a it's a tough, tough time for many of these people to um, to give as much as as we've asked them to as an industry. Um, and so, what we've seen are people who are resigning, and then we see people who are maybe coming back to work, but but tripling their <laughs> their price to do so. Um, and that comes, you know, that 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 comes in the form of temporary staffing and the like. So if we take in less money because we're performing fewer procedures, and we are paying more for the staff members that we have to perform those procedures, that means we keep less of the money that we make. And as an industry, that's not a great place to be. So how do we how do we continue to uh, thrive in the face of this sort of headwind? Um, Understanding that staffing shortages are likely to continue for a while. That's when I think we look toward, as you mentioned, automation and virtualization. So um, automation, it's obvious, you know, it's obvious in the name. The more we can automate, the less we need to ask of our scarce team members, and the less likely those team members are to be burned out because we are taking work off of their plates, Automation is something that we, you know, maybe the the juice wasn't worth the squeeze in the past um, because the cost of change associated with automation sometimes outweighed the value that we get from that automation. But as the cost of staff has skyrocketed, suddenly the cost of the automation in comparison becomes a no-brainer. So automation of so many aspects of our day-to-day activities for our team members um, primarily clinical, but sometimes non-clinical, that becomes much more interesting to us um, as a pursuit than perhaps it has been in the past. Uh, The second piece you mentioned was virtualization. And we saw some of that as an industry um, during COVID when we, many of us were um, concerned about ensuring we had enough ICU uh, capacity across across our organizations. So one of the things that, that, uh, that we did, and I'm sure you know, most of the people who are in your audience probably did this as well, we, um, we created a, a virtual ICU. So we had remote intensivists looking after and working with um, patients in rooms that were attended by hospitalists. So the intensivist was remote and therefore the intensivist could scale Across, you know, many, many, many more rooms than typically would be would be possible if they were having to physically be there and lay eyes on patients versus having all of their, you know, the advanced sensor capability that we have and all of the readouts that they could keep their eyes on many, many more patients at one time. And then the hospitalists are there in the room with the, with the patient. So with that, we sh- we saw what virtualization can do at scale for patients that you know truly was life saving. Um, so again, when you're trying to solve a problem of scarcity, any way you can do virtual work is, is important. So right now, you know, as we all know, nurses are scarce. We're looking at virtual nursing specifically around you know checking people in and checking people out. Yep. That's not yep. something that needs to happen right there on the floor. That's something that can be done remotely. And that's a simple example. There are many other sorts of things where we don't necessarily need somebody on the floor doing that work. Um, it can be done remotely. and so the people who are on the floor are doing the work that absolutely must be done at the bedside. and that's that's how we want to keep um, yeah. keep our focus.
1: These are fascinating examples and you know just what you mentioned, the checking in and checking out, it reminds me of an analog in um, you know, when we first started flying or at least when I started flying, the entire path of a traveler from when you uh, were dropped off curbside to how you had to check yourself, In standing in line, where a human being would check you in, and then you had to go check your bags in, and a human being would print those luggage tags for you. And if you look at the world today and the path of a traveler through an airport, and I'm not suggesting patients can be there, they can't check themselves in and out, but so much of it can be done virtually, which is actually not just a cost saving, it actually provides the traveler or the patient a better experience because it can be done more efficiently and faster. I'd much rather check myself into my flight and check my bags and then wait in long lines uh, for other people to do that. That's uh,
2: exactly right. And we do have, I mean, we do have geofencing that allows for auto check-in in some of our clinics. So someone comes in, if they're running our app, we can check them in automatically. So that's, that. you know, some of that is is very similar. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll say there's something else the airlines do that is interesting. And that is... Uh, when they are staffing, when they're figuring out what the what the what the crew will look like on a plane, um, my understanding is that uh, if if one is a flight attendant, then one can log into a system and bid for certain flights, right. and those flights are are you know granted based on seniority and other scheduling considerations. This is your world. I'm starting to talk about scheduling. I probably probably <laughs> am going to wade into deep waters, <laughs> but but you know these are those sorts of things that are interesting because. Because um, one of the things we're hearing from our nurses, again, those scarce nurses, is that they they would love to have a more flexible schedule. You know, they would love to, and we're able to give that to them. Now, we haven't become as sophisticated as perhaps the airlines have, because they've been doing this sort of thing for many, many years with the, the bidding and the, you know, all the rest of it. But there are things that we are planning that are very much along those lines to make it as easy as possible uh, for our team members who are coming in and caring for the patients and, and working with the communities to uh, to engage with us and engage with the communities as advantageously and seamlessly and painlessly as possible for our team members. So we learn what, a lot from the airlines.
1: What a great example, Angela, because if I were to just take that one step further in terms of uh, how airlines do it and how healthcare could do it, this is something we're working on a lot of how airlines manage staffing is by predicting which route will be, uh, will yield how many passengers, right? right. That starts right there. And so in healthcare, by being able to predict demand, and doing demand-based staffing, and moving staff, including self-scheduling of staff of the right credentials and the right type, is really where the industry should go. So uh, this is something that is near and dear to us. We're doing a lot of work here as well, and sounds like this is an offline conversation. We should love. We'd love to have with your um, staffing folks. But one of th- the
2: many fun conversations we tend to have. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: exactly right. And you know the ROI on something like that goes beyond the economic because, like you said, it's doing more with less. It's making sure we use the resources we do have in a world where resources are shrinking while demand is rising. So this is not optional anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and these kinds of predictions on future case volume, future. Uh, bed management. Um, how how many units are going to be impacted? When during the day and moving nurses and staff around is just going to be necessary. It's not just something that's that's uh, uh, nice to have.
2: I believe it will be. And you know the the secondary challenge then that's going to come with that is you know if you ask nurses what they've historically loved about their jobs, they'll tell you you know I loved my unit. I love the people with whom I worked, you know, and and by the way, many of them are gone and there are a lot of new faces. And so that, that has changed around me. And so my, my work family has changed. So our challenge will be, um, you know, as you and I know, putting the, putting the technology in place and defining the right processes to allow for that more sophisticated approach to staffing and very fluid approach to staffing is probably less difficult than, uh, you know ensuring that we we are creating that same valued culture, family feel for our team members because they have very tough jobs and it's important to have one's crew <laughs> around one when when doing that sort of work. Yeah uh, so we do have to we have to solve for that somehow and that's totally. more for and, us to discuss. Uh,
1: absolutely and the people and process side of it is probably twice as important as just the technology. I mean, the technology does enable it, and without that, we don't have very much, but um, you're so right, um, and, you know, would we can talk for an hour just about the airline experience.
2: <laughs> and by the way, neither one of us, out of all the industries in which we've worked, I don't believe either one of us has been in airlines. Is that correct? But we've, yeah. both,
1: been, we've both been users of it for 30 years. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah a big sacred cow tends to be not invented here. Or, you know, if it's not epic or if it's not something that the entire industry is adopting, we're not going to take a risk on working with, back then, little old Lintas. How is that as a, that's very unique as a culture where you folks are willing to take risks on, on third parties. And you mentioned that before. What is it about the governance structure, the management team, your style that lets that happen?
2: So I think there are a number of factors that allow for that sort of engagement. First, we we don't approach the way in which we provide access to care or increase quality of care from a position of fear. We believe and we take very seriously uh, that our responsibility is to increase quality of care to the patients we serve in our region, and if we are to just wait until every other system in the country has accomplished something for their patients and we force our patients to wait until we are the we are you know number 30 or number 50 or number 60 then some patients will not get the care they need when they need it and some patients our patients in our region will be as a whole less healthy it is extremely important that we take our responsibility to continue to push the boundaries, to continue to increase access, increase quality through, you know, means that require a degree of sophistication that may not be found at, you know, every single institution across the country. We upskill our people constantly. We constantly seek to learn. We're constantly paying attention to what's possible, what's commercially available. We, we, constantly test and engage with our ecosystem to determine what may be coming in the future, what might they be willing to, to do for us in a co-creation sort of approach. Uh, it's that constant activity and hunger for improvement that will allow our patients, the ones we serve in our region, to be the healthiest patients in the country, not because um, not because of, of of chance, but because we have very carefully and intentionally gone after those differentiating capabilities that make a difference to them.
1: Wow. That is such a phenomenal way of looking at things. If you put the patient at the center and say, our responsibility is to make sure we have the healthiest communities possible. And we cannot assume that the tools required to get there and provide access are all built in house, can be built in house. We are willing, therefore, to partner with the best out there. As you think about your your peers at other health systems that are starting or at or are at various stages of this transformation journey, um, what would your advice be for folks who aren't quite where you're at?
2: So everyone budgets slightly differently, um, but let's talk about the budget as a as a whole. Um, <clears throat> like most companies, we have an operational budget, and that doesn't change very much year over year. Um, there is some change in the sense that there are certain things that just cost more to do next year than they did this year, and even more so than they were than they than they cost last year. There are there's a there's a capital budget that we use for build so new build, but these are budgets that are set. These are buckets of money, uh, the size of which is set in advance, and. It's, you know, it's set in advance of the year so that 2023 budgets are being set now, which means we are right now at the point at which we know the least about what we're actually going to need to do in 2023. <laughs> so we will know a lot more about what the priorities should be halfway through the year. So what we have to do is allow for, uh, as an executive team, we have to allow ourselves to have conversations, some of which are sometimes difficult to have, um, saying, "Hey, we thought we were going to be spending this much money here, this much money here, this much money here, but now with the emergence of this new data, whatever you know, so, some some new event has happened, some you know, new information has become available to us, which makes us now know that the right thing to do is, you know, Project Y or Project Z. So we have to somehow shake loose some funding from the original portfolio of projects." To fund projects Y and Z, and that that's you know it's it's that ability to flex, which and and to incorporate learnings and the emergence of new data into our decision making that I think has allowed Novant Health to be quite fluid and flexible in, in how we think about um, getting some of this more important work done, because yeah. we're not we didn't say you know what right now in November of 2022 or December of 2022, whatever month it is, (laughs) we are going to outline 20, these 20 things. And we're going to do that in 2023, come hell or high water. I mean, that's a terrible way to be. I mean, yeah, you can definitely predict what you're going to be doing in 2023. There's comfort in that. But what if those are the wrong things? What if we learn something in March of 2023 that indicates that this, you know, five of these are completely wrong? Well, let's, let's give ourselves the freedom to recognize that. And, and move forward with different things
1: such an incredible point, you know, and when I look at startups or companies in tech that are you know um, able to be nimble because they always grew up like that, hats off to you guys because for an eight billion dollar health system to think like that, that's extraordinary.
2: there's a cultural underpinning to what we just discussed in the finance of um, approach that is that that must be uh, must be put in place in order for a company to be flexible that I'm going to broadly call it it's a culture of learning. but very specifically what I mean is no one should be bashed over the head, so to speak, for you know in March in the example we used earlier, uh, saying, hey, you know what these five projects are no longer necessary. No one should get their head lopped off for that, you know and you have to as a leader, It's important that we model behaviors that allow for people to come forward and say, I don't know everything. This is what I think I know. These are the plans I think we should make based on what I do know. But we need to collectively reserve the right to learn and to adjust along the way. What that means is if you're a leader and you're asking for your quarterly operational review and you ask all your people to come in and part of what they present to you are learnings And they propose a shift in direction. That should be an open conversation. That's not about why did you not predict this earlier? Why did you not know this? Why did you not come up with this? Let's celebrate the fact that we now know. (laughs) And let's let's together identify how adjustments should be made and move forward. That means that sometimes some team members are going to come to us as leaders. They're going to come to us with some ideas that are still a little, um, as, as my head of HR would describe, a little raggedy. You know, and it's okay. We need to be able to accept ideas for discussion that may not be fully thought through, and that's okay. And these are these are things that um, need to be in the room. Discussions that must be had, and we as leaders need to be able to demonstrate that we are willing to learn along with our teams, and that we have have uh, and that we are willing to create the space for the teams to learn. Um, as time moves on, and if you have that culture of learning even before you get all the other constructs in place that you need to move quickly around all of these other things, then it gives you um, it gives you the space to have those conversations about change.
1: Anything you would add in in wrapping up, Angela? Like I said, this is always one of the most fascinating conversations we have uh, when we're able to find time with you. Anything you'd add in in um, as as a parting thought for for everybody?
2: No, just to thank you. For your thought partnership, um, for your tremendous capabilities that you've brought to Novant Health, to our estate, um, you've made a big difference for our patients in their the patient journey, in access to care, both in the infusion ch- center as well as in the ORs, and that's you know foundational for what we're trying to do for our communities, and your participation in that has been essential, and so we're grateful for it. Thank you.
1: It's very mutual. Thank you, Angela.
0: Thank you to Sanjeev and Angela for that terrific conversation. You can hear the full conversation by tuning into the BeckerHospitalReview.com and navigating to the Transform Hospital Operations drop-down on our virtual events page. Again, thank you for joining us, Sanjeev and Angela. Thank you for listening. Uh, What a pleasure. Thank you very much.